Hey listeners, welcome back to episode 16 of Creme de la Crime podcast. On the list this week is the state of Kansas. According to worldpopulationreview.com, Kansas has 81 unsolved disappearances. Remember to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Kansas true crime. I was having a hard time choosing the cases for today's episode, but when I came across Julia's story, it was one of those I had to share. So this story is about Julia Stoddard, aka the dog lady. I think the reason this isn't really a known case is maybe because Julia lived an extremely private and secluded life. And by that, I mean she basically lived off the grid. There's barely any information about her life, and her disappearance is a giant mystery. The cases where the evidence just doesn't add up or is lacking are the most frustrating of all, because I truly have no idea what happened to Julia. Like I said, there's not a lot known about her life, And no one could even state when she was actually born. All anyone really knew about her in the community she lived in was that Julia had previously been divorced, had no children, and had no communication with relatives. No one visited her, and she didn't visit anyone else either. The only things people really said about her was that she was an intelligent woman who read books constantly her favorite being Western novels. She had moved to the little town of Delavan, Kansas from Fort Riley after she retired from her job as a civil service employee in 1973. The exact year she bought her house and moved is unknown, but Delavan had actually been a commercial center before the Great Depression. During the Depression, it had shrunk to just a small cluster of homes. All the schools had closed, there were no longer any banks, and the only businesses consisted of a welding shop, a crop and grain company, and a post office. The government opened an airbase for refueling during World War II, and this base was located about three miles north of town and just a bit to the east of where Julia purchased her home. This base only lasted for a short time, and closed shortly after the war ended. The government ended up selling that entire property to the nearby city of Harrington, Kansas. Harrington turned the site into an industrial park, and it became the temporary home to a number of businesses. The park never did fully develop, and by the time Julia had bought her house, it had been completely abandoned and remained unused. So I wanted to share this little bit of history with you to paint a clear picture of just how small this town actually is. We all know how small towns are. Everybody knows everything about everyone. So this should also tell you just how secluded Julia was. For no one to really know anything about her in a town with such a minimal population. 
The town didn't really embrace Julia's arrival, but they accepted her because she didn't bother anyone. In fact, the only time people saw Julia was when she went to the store to get dog food or went out looking for one of her dogs. Now, you're probably wondering why she's called the dog lady. Well, Julia may not have had any human companions, but she absolutely loved dogs, to the point that I would consider her an animal hoarder. Even though she owned two acres of land, the house she lived in was pretty small. It was known by everyone in town that there was a nearby highway where people would regularly abandon dogs they didn't want or could no longer care for. And just a side note, this was also a really common thing people used to do, and it's extremely inhumane, and there are actually laws that have been put into place against this. So Julia would go and catch any of these strays that she could, and she would bring them back to live on her property with her. There are multiple conflicting sources regarding just how many dogs she accumulated on this property. There was a source that said 100 dogs, others said up to 200, and another even claimed at one point there were up to 500 dogs on this property. So from what I could gather, no one really knows the amount of dogs that live with Julia over the years, but it's safe to say there were a lot, so we're just going to leave it at that. Julia wasn't your normal dog hoarder, though. And what I mean is people actually stated that she loved these dogs and took care of them better than she took care of herself. The dogs were well cared for and always had fresh food and water. It was said that she spent so much money on dog food that sometimes she would go without eating just so she could feed these dogs. The sheriff of the town said she named all of these dogs and she knew all of their names. Anytime one of the dogs would run off, she would go to the sheriff and file a report to have him and the town looking out for the dog. It was even stated that one time her truck would not start, so she walked the three-plus miles to Delavan with a wheelbarrow just to buy dog food. So, if you can't tell by now, this is inevitably how she became well-known as the dog lady. Like I mentioned earlier, Julia took top-notch care of her dogs, but she didn't really take care of herself at all. Her house became filled with dust, dirt, mud, and dog feces. Stacks of books were piled everywhere, and she had no heat, electricity, running water, or telephone service. Although she refused to let anyone on her property or in her home, she was known to occasionally run off social workers and the county health officials with a shotgun when they would approach her about the condition of the property. Even though this may seem like eccentric behavior, the residents said that they found Julia to be a nice, friendly person who was entirely in her right mind so most of Delavan's population was content to just leave her be. She even had a neighbor named Edward Jones who stated, It's like Howard Hughes. He had his right to live his lifestyle. She has a right to her friendship with those dogs. End quote. It's not clear exactly when Julia disappeared. We know for sure it was in the winter, but some sources claim it was the winter of 1982 1983, 
1984. The most commonly agreed upon date of her disappearance is December 27, 1983. So I'm going with this date. A lot of details of this case were hard to confirm because she lived such an isolated life. The night before Julia disappeared, it had been snowing pretty heavily. Some sources stated there were some areas of the town that had snow up to three feet. And remember, this is a small town, so it's not like you have an army of snowplows coming through clearing the land and the roads. The few snowplows that were available had hundreds of miles to clear. The next day, one of her neighbors named Jessie was passing by her property and saw Julia trying to shovel out her pickup truck. He said he didn't think anything of it and he kept driving. He didn't know that this was the last time anyone would ever see Julia. Three days later, on December 31st, Jessie drove by her house again and noticed that her truck was still parked in the same place. He also realized he hadn't seen Julia at all since the day he had driven by originally. This concerned him enough to contact the new sheriff, who was named Richard, for a welfare check to be conducted at her home. It was about a 30-minute drive to Julia's house, and Richard was shocked by what he found when he arrived. It was said there were at least 100 dogs on the property when he arrived. At least 20 of these dogs were tied up in various spots around the yard, but most of them were running free. They were in various stages of starvation, to the point that 10 of the dogs were already dead and had been partially consumed by the other dogs to survive. There was no food or water, and for the dogs that were loose, authorities had to set live traps to catch them. Sadly, almost all of these dogs ended up having to be euthanized, and only seven of them were considered adoptable. The sheriff knocked on the door and called out for her, but he received no response. In case you don't know, when police are called to conduct a welfare check, they have the legal authority to enter the home. After receiving no response, he entered the home and found nothing. No body, no evidence of a struggle, no signs of a break-in, and no sign of Julia. The house, however, was filthy. Like I said, there was no running water or telephone service, and it appeared that the stove had not been lit all winter. Multiple windows in the house were broken, and it looked as if no one had gone up to the second floor in years. It was obvious to Richard that Julia had strictly lived downstairs in the basement. He stated the basement floor was full of debris and trash around 12 to 18 inches deep. In one room, he discovered books that had been stacked like bricks to a depth of about three feet, and these stacks completely covered the floor of this room except for one small path that went through the room. So it's safe to say that dogs were not the only thing Julia was hoarding. I feel like it's hard for the common person to really understand hoarding and what goes on in the minds of the people that suffer from this disorder because it is a mental disorder. So I do want to share just a few facts about hoarding specifically. 
Hoarding disorder is defined as a persistent difficulty discarding or parting with possessions because of a perceived need to save them. A person with hoarding disorder experiences extreme distress at the thought of getting rid of items, so excessive accumulation of items occurs regardless of their value. Please understand that hoarding and collecting is not the same thing. Collecting involves saving certain types of items, like comic books, stamps, coins, etc. But people that are collectors carefully choose these items and typically organize them in a specific way. Normal collecting does not negatively impact a person's daily life. Hoarding, on the other hand, doesn't involve any organization of the items. Hoarding also negatively impacts their daily lives and sometimes even jeopardizes their health. Now, there's a little bit of BS around the new sheriff and how this investigation was carried out. Richard had been a longtime officer who had previously worked for the police department in Wichita. Some people in the town thought he was too much of a politician, saying he was, quote, long on self-promotion and short on skills, end quote. As the investigation unfolded, he actually gave tours of the home to numerous people, including members of the press. So, at best, he kind of compromised the investigation, and at worst, he possibly destroyed evidence if there was a crime scene. In a small town like this, major crimes like murder and disappearances are not common, so I can't even imagine the frenzy that this would have caused among the community. This would have been something everyone was talking about. There was no trace of Julia anywhere. The only obvious evidence was when they found the cane she always carried on the ground beside her truck. It was also reported that her purse was missing and has never been found. Over the next few weeks, the local sheriff's department ran out of leads and the case quickly went cold. So that's it. The case went cold. No other evidence was found. No trace of Julia was ever found. It's just a big, huge mystery that the town still talks about to this day. When the local police couldn't make any headway in this case, they did call in the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and they reviewed all the evidence that had been collected before starting their own investigation. They spoke to a lot of people, including family members, but found no leads. There are a few theories in this case, so I wanted to go through a few that have been the most discussed throughout the years. One theory is that Julia had some form of emergency and decided to walk into town when she couldn't dig out her truck. Like I said earlier, it was a little over three miles by road to get to town, and people think she may have possibly died from exposure or some form of accident. Another weather-related theory was that the extreme conditions had caused her own water supply to become inoperable. It was known that the old base I talked about earlier had a source of water that was still in operation. Some people speculate Julia may have used this as a second water source when necessary and may have died trying to reach it. Now, no one knows for sure if she ever used this base as a secondary water source, but it is a very strong possibility. People also stated that this abandoned base might have been a prime location for criminal activity. 
It was mainly thought that this location was a delivery point for drugs by car and possibly by private plane. This has also never been confirmed, but it would have been easy to get away with because this location had a landing strip and was basically completely unmonitored because it was abandoned. Authorities considered that maybe on a trip to get water, Julia accidentally stumbled upon something she wasn't supposed to see. But if this were the case, wouldn't her body have eventually been found in the searches? Another theory that people have become convinced of but I'm not, is that Julia passed away and her dogs ate her because they were starving. I don't know why people seem to be so set on this possibility, and let me explain why. Dogs do not eat all parts of a carcass, even in the wild. So even if this had happened, it had only been a few days when the welfare check was conducted So there's no way that these dogs ate her and there was no trace or sign that this happened. Dogs would not have eaten her clothing, so there would have at least been that. They don't completely consume the skeleton. So aside from the fact that there would have been a trace of clothing or shoes, there would have been an obvious sign that these dogs had eaten or torn something apart. So even though this is one of the most discussed possibilities, I don't believe this is what happened. Some people also speculate she may have fell down a snow-covered hole or open well and was unable to get out and has just remained undiscovered. It was noted there were no mine shafts around this area, so that was ruled out, but her home was very isolated and surrounded by scrub brush that was really difficult to walk through, even without snow. No one can really agree on what happened but everyone did agree that Julia would never willingly abandon her dogs. The KBI tried several different search methods, but still came up empty. If there's no body and no evidence, technically there's no crime. The leading agent worked really hard on this case. In one of the hangars, he discovered a large tank built into the floor like a pool that was full of water. Now, I looked up what a hangar is, and it is a building or structure designed to hold an aircraft. So I'm assuming this was located at the abandoned base. Detectives had this tank drained to see if they could find any evidence, but ultimately found nothing. This tank measured almost 14 feet deep and required a ladder for investigators to get in and out of. Military helicopters, four-wheel drive vehicles, and horses were all brought in to conduct searches of the surrounding areas, still finding nothing. The story was kept alive by the local media for some time, but died down once no new information surfaced. It has never been determined if a crime took place or not. Julia was declared legally dead in 1992, and the following year, her house was demolished so the entire property could be sold. I also read that an aspiring author reached out to Julia's surviving family members and asked if she could write a book about her story, but the family denied her request, and it was hinted that a lawsuit might be threatened if anything negative was said about their missing relative. Which, you can't blame people for feeling that way, because some people do have good intentions when trying to do things like that, But we've all heard of the instances where people use these families and the victims as meal tickets. And for me personally, I wouldn't want some random stranger trying to write about the life of my loved one that they've never even met. 
Any sort of publications like that, I feel, should be strictly left to family members and loved ones. Julia Stoddard was last seen attempting to dig her truck out of the snow at her home in Delavan, Kansas on December 27, 1983. A neighbor contacted the local police for a welfare check several days later after he realized her truck was still in the same place and no one had seen her. Julia is a Caucasian female with gray hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'3 and weighed around 85 pounds. Her exact age at the time is not known, but she was thought to be between 69 to 72 years old when she went missing. She has never been seen or heard from again. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Julia Stoddard, please contact the Kansas Bureau of Investigation at 785-296-4017. The next cold case I want to share with you is about a little girl by the name of Beverly Ann Ward. Beverly Ward was born on April 17, 1965, to parents Carnell and Bernia Ward. Beverly was the youngest of eight siblings and grew up in Junction City, Kansas. By the time she went missing, the majority of her siblings had already moved out of the family home, so she was living with her 16-year-old sister Brenda and their parents. The Ward children all attended Junction City Schools, and some of their yearbook photos are even available online. At this time, the family was living at 227 West 11th Street in Junction City. If you go looking for the home where Beverly disappeared from, you'll find it was torn down and a newer home was later built there in 2006. On July 3, 1978, Beverly had spent the day with one of her friends, and this friend ended up spending the night at Beverly's house that night. Beverly was 13 at this time, and her friend was reportedly 9 years old. The girls were planning to attend a summer camp the next day on the 4th, and this friend even stated years later that she doesn't remember anything being out of the ordinary or anyone strange approaching them that day. Beverly's bedroom had an extra bed in it, so both girls fell asleep in their own beds but in the same room. Around 6 a.m., the entire household woke up suddenly when a brick was thrown through a neighbor's window. This loud crash woke up multiple people throughout the neighborhood and everyone gathered outside to see what had happened. Beverly's family and her friend got up and walked out onto the porch to see what happened before walking back inside. This was when everyone realized Beverly wasn't with them. They searched all through the house and the neighborhood, but there was no sign of her. Her mom reported her missing around 5 p.m. that evening. When the police arrived, they found nothing was missing. Beverly's packed bag for summer camp was still there as well as the $12 she had been saving. Everything was as it had been when the girls went to bed. One thing that was out of place was the screen to Beverly's bedroom window was missing. They ended up finding the screen in one piece about 10 feet away from the house and it was obvious it had been cut from the frame. Because of the circumstances, police instantly ruled it as an abduction. 
They speculated that Beverly was kidnapped out of her own bed sometime between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. It was also said that even though Beverly was 13, she was mentally immature and considered petite and weak for her age. Authorities spoke to family members and they were able to rule them out. In 1978, Junction City was known as a transient area where people didn't stay for long. It was said that hundreds of people passed through during this time, and police were afraid that the kidnapper may have possibly been passing through and left for another state after abducting Beverly. Police questioned a few suspects, two of them after neighbors claimed to have seen them parked in a vehicle near the home around midnight that night. A third unknown suspect was also named after being seen around the area multiple times over the weeks leading up to her disappearance. Police ended up finding no direct evidence tying any of these suspects to the crime, and no fingerprints were ever found at the scene. A news article released in January of 2018 stated that the Junction City Police Captain had recently requested the FBI to look into the case once again. According to the captain, There's no, quote, actual reason why the department is requesting the Bureau to investigate the Ward case. Several detectives over the years have looked at the case. When I took over investigations, I made it one of my goals to see if anything more could be done to try and solve this case, end quote. The last update available stated the police department was still waiting for an answer from the FBI as to whether they will get involved or not. As far as I could find... Beverly's siblings and the friend that stayed over that night are still alive, but both of her parents passed away with no answers. It has been speculated that Beverly may have been found at some point, but has remained unidentified due to the fact that there is no dental or DNA available for her. Beverly Ward was last seen at her family home in Junction City, Kansas, during the early morning hours of July 4, 1978, when she was 13 years old. She is an African-American female with black hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'4 and weighed around 54 pounds. Some people speculate her reported weight may have been entered wrong, but no one can confirm this for sure. Beverly was wearing a green nightgown and blue underwear and was also born with an extra bone in her middle finger, which looked like a partial finger. Her case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Beverly Ward, please contact the Junction City Police Department at 785-762-5912. That is all I have for today's episode. But if you have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email crimedelacrimepodcast7 at gmail.com. And don't forget to head to Instagram and follow me at crimedelacrimepod. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. (laughs) 